especially in the pain world, if you have an Achilles tendon problem, they'll say, here's your calf raise protocol and off you go. And that problem has been solved for us already. It completely takes away critical thinking. It's like, okay, but before you come in and see me, I know you've written down on your intake form, Achilles tendinopathy. And I know the calf raise protocol I'm going to give you. But what if I could just change the timing of your of your calcaneus, your heel bone, how your foot strikes and interacts with the floor, then probably the Achilles is actually not the problem. It's probably just doing too much work or at the wrong time or being tugged on a little bit in the wrong way. And that's getting a little bit grumpy. So if I can change how your foot interacts with the floor, then maybe the foot starts to load different. The load starts to go in a slightly different direction. And you've experienced this, Joel. We've we've done some work on your Achilles in the past. And you, I guarantee you, you don't have weak calves. I guarantee you, you've done a lot of calf work over the years because you've had Achilles tendinopathy for a long time and you've experienced pain after a run or the next morning or something like that. And yet when we do some work on your foot, that pain starts to go away. And wh- where is that in the calf raise protocol? That was biomechanics specialist David Gray. And you're listening to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. It's awesome to have you guys here. I hope you're having a great week and thanks for tuning in. So one of the ways I've been evolving in my journey as a coach has been in really getting into more of a joint-based model uh, over a muscle-based model, uh, not just in in rehab, but also in performance. And I've learned this from uh, several coaches. The first was was in the performance realm, and that was working with Adarian Barr. And then I got into it on the rehab end with Gary Ward. And at the end of the day, uh, and I'm sure you've seen this as this podcast has gone along, but but starting with biomechanics, starting with the model by which the body organically and naturally moves, and going there first. And if it's that's broken, then fixing that first rather than uh, working or jumping to to exercises and and muscles first. And it's the body is a beautiful thing. We learn so much from it, and I'm always excited to dig into it and more of what it does. I'm thrilled to have David Gray back on the show. David was our guest for episode 160. We talked a lot about the link between pronation, the glutes, uh, incomplete knee extension and sprinting and running, and a whole lot more. David is a guy, David is a bit of a conduit for me in the sense of he uh, was my first exposure to Gary Ward's wedge system. David and I have been corresponding the last year on topics of the foot and pronation. We oftentimes end up working with the same athletes in the online space together, uh, me on the performance end, him on the rehab and and biomechanics end, and it's really been an amazing learning experience for me. So I wanted to get him back on the show. This time, uh, fl- initially flipping the script, we talked a lot about pronation last time, and I wanted to start off the show actually addressing supination, just because I think pronation and can you pronate is the big thing, but we, we don't just focus on w- one thing. Like it's not, the human body is not just about one thing or one side of the equation. And if you listen to my podcast with Rocky Snyder recently, I had an experience where reintroducing the sensation of supination in my foot had me feeling a little bit more like my old, my springy high school self, the way that my feet were popping off the ground. And anyways, I just wanted to get into that element of the foot. And we also get into a lot of ideas on, on barefoot and why actually we always say barefoot and it's awesome. And it is, but for some athletes and some clients, it actually may not be all it's cracked up to be based on some preexisting factors. So we're going to start off with a lot of great talk on the foot and supination, pronation, barefoot. And then we're going to get into 
David's thoughts on a joint-based model on addressing uh, knee pain and Achilles pain in, and some of David's go-tos in making sure the kinetic chain, uh, the integrity of the kinetic chain is there when we're looking at does an athlete have what it takes to stabilize joints properly, to move properly, and to have this baseline by which all other strength, strength interventions can be effective. So whether you are looking to get athletes out of pain or you're just looking for a fuller understanding of the human body and that joint-based model by which we move and operate, this is an awesome show. David, he's such a wealth of knowledge. David's a guy who's learned from the best of the best. Uh, Gary Ward, Postural Restoration Institute, the martial arts, the list goes on. Every time I talk to David, I always learn something. I'm always so impressed with such the, the wide lens that he takes on athletics and the human body. So that all being said, let's get on to episode 212 of the podcast. Here we go. David, man, hey, it's good to have you back on the show. Hey, Joel. Thanks very much for having me back. Uh, always great to chat. I actually saw, I, I checked before I came on, and it's nearly a year since we chatted last on a podcast. I know we've chatted quite a bit in that in that year, but um, it's good to it's good to always catch up. Oh, for sure. Yeah, a lot of a lot's happened since uh, our last. I guess. Well, there's a lot of chatting and and cool exercises and things we've we've shared in the virtual space with that in the time that we've talked. So I'm, I, it'll be great to get to a lot of that today. And you know, I know last yeah. time the, the topic was pronation. Uh, and then this is some of the stuff we covered since our last show, but uh, supination, right? Like, I mean, it's like you have to be able to pronate, but I think I'd like to cover the opposite end of that spectrum if we're always looking at the, the mm -hmm. interrelationship. So can we start off a little bit by you know, what is the, uh, we need to pronate to be you know, functional and, and, and be able to work well athletically, but what is the importance, mm -hmm. and maybe first describe it too, but what's the description, the importance of being able to supinate the foot uh, in human movement? Yeah, uh, I guess, yeah, we did talk about pronation quite a lot the last time and, and it's quite detailed. The foot is quite detailed, but if you if you want to call pronation just kind of the flattening of the arches of the foot, uh, then supination would be the opposite. It's kind of the, the lifting of the arches of the foot and the foot starts to lock and become a, a more rigid lever. And people will typically say that pronation is a bad thing and supination is a good thing. And in reality, one doesn't exist without the other. There is no up without down. There is no left without right. And people who are stuck in one of these two things tend to be the people who have a problem. So we'll see that people who are, and it's not necessarily about how your foot looks, Joel, or any part of your body, how it looks. It's how it moves. And we had this conversation a little bit recently as well. Uh, it's very much about how your foot moves. So if you, if you look like you have a more pronated foot, I would be much happier with you having a, a more pronated or a flat foot that can actually experience some supination and some pronation than someone who looks like they have a really nice neutral looking foot, but actually can't experience either. And so it's not that pronation is good and supination is bad or vice versa. It's just that we need both. It's like saying, it's like saying the people who say that pronation is bad, it's like them saying you shouldn't bend your spine to the left because your spine should go left and right and your foot should go left and right and up and down and in and out and all these different ways. And that's how we move. And if you're going to, if you're going to walk through, through the woods, if you think of where we came from in the forest or something like that, and your foot is, is, is landing on a different twig and a different rock on every single footstep, 10,000 footsteps a day, probably double that uh, for our ancestors. 
then your foot better have a little bit of variability and be, better be able to react to the surface that you're that you're moving on. And that kind of reaction to the surface is a is a pronation and that kind of push off is more of a supination. But that and, and Gary Ward will speak about this, who's obviously a genius in the world of the foot, is that it it's a full body movement, the pronation and the supination. And uh, we should hopefully heel strike. If we just speak about walking, we should hopefully heel strike in a more supinated position. And that will drive kind of movement into the pelvis and, and, and the knee and, and they'll make a certain shape. Um, and then we'll roll into a little bit of a more pronated position. And we have to be careful when we talk about pronation, because a lot of people will say that pronation is a collapse, a collapse of the arch. And they'll think of over pronation. And those are the people who don't understand movement. A collapse and a pronation are two different things. They're not the same thing, okay? We could just think of the foot kind of yielding to the arch rather than collapse. Um, and then and then as we go to push off again, then the foot is going to resupinate, meaning the whole body is going to resupinate. It becomes a little bit more rigid and locked up and allows us a more stable start surface to move off of. Now, when we run, there obviously isn't going to, or hopefully isn't going to be a heel strike um, when we're sprinting, but there still is going to be striking in a slightly more supinated position, moving into a more pronated position, and then pushing off in a more supinated position. But I guess supinated and pronated, the words aren't amazing. We probably should be able to replace them with pronating and supinating because movement is obviously continuous. So it's ing rather than ud. The, the, and that's mm -hmm. the same for my, my pelvis, my, my, um, my spine. My spine is flexing to the right and flexing to the left. And any time that we say that we shouldn't be, we sh you're putting limitations on movement, you shouldn't pronate, then you're automatically saying you shouldn't supinate because you're taking away the movement from one to the other. So um it's not that one is good one is bad i guess it's just it's just we have to experience movement in all these joints and if there's 33 joints in the foot and you're saying you shouldn't pronate or you shouldn't supinate then you're saying that you shouldn't move a lot of joints and if evolution if evolution if we were designed in a certain way to not move our feet and just keep them in one rigid state then that would be we we wouldn't have 33 joints in the foot we would probably have one joint yeah, no, that was something we were talking about a little bit beforehand, and I know we'll get to is being able to, rather than just thinking in things of force, being you have to use your joints correctly, because if you aren't doing that, you're setting such a limiter on yourself. Uh, I, I, you said a couple of things that I thought was interesting, and uh, like I've I've seen a pair of, like I've seen twins who uh, jump differently, where one athlete has uh, a more has selected more of a type of footwear that's more sensation oriented and the other athlete selected footwear based off of uh, just how it felt or how it looked sorry how it looked and the athlete who selected the footwear based off how it looked was jumping in a more supinated position almost like more on the outside edges mm -hmm. of the feet and it just got me thinking you were saying that when uh, when the foot is uh, it, when you're stepping on those twigs and you're experiencing all these sensations on the bottom of the foot, this would set you up for, uh, that helps the pronation better. Like that, like the sensation, a sensation and pronation or, or pronating, sorry, I should say pronating that cycle. 
but is is sensing things more of a pronating thing like you do you know what i'm saying does that does that make sense yeah it it does make sense i'm not sure that sensing is more of a pronation thing uh, or pronating thing it's because sense sensation when we especially when if you think of heel striking on the floor that heel is like a hammer and that heel striking sends a vibration all the way up through my body and that vibration is a sensation and that's almost like uh that's almost like a measure of success for my brain. I think in some ways that I've successfully heel striked here and now I'm setting myself up to move forward into the right position. And if we heel strike in maybe more the inside of my heel, then that since that vibration is going to be quite different and I'm striking in a little bit more of a pronated position. Now, when we talk about sensation, I do think people who cannot pronate their feet, who maybe stand on the outside edge of their feet quite a bit and are quite locked up, I do think that they're, that's a representation of their whole body. And the feet are, no matter what you say, they are a representation of the whole body. But if they struggle to, if they do struggle to pronate and actually get the weight into the inside of the feet and, and allow that arch to just, to just soften and yield down a little bit, then I see that as a brain who is, it might be a little bit esoteric in some ways, but I see that as someone who's not very grounded into the floor. They don't, it's like the brain can't let go. It's like the body can't let go. And I see a lot of like neck tension and shoulder tension and back tension because they're trying to fight gravity to hold themselves up and they can't yield to the to gravity and, and actually allow that foot to relax into the floor and give the weight of their jaw and their neck and their all their, their traps into the floor. And that might sound that might sound a little bit airy fairy, but that is that is something that we will we will recognize. So a lot of the time if you're if and that and that's why I should speak about this a little bit, Joel, with the the kind of barefoot movement. Sometimes we need to be careful with that because if someone if someone has those type of feet and they have very poor sensation coming from the floor, then a lot of the time people will say, go barefoot and you'll be able to feel the floor more. Now, what happens if I've just taken the arch of your shoe away and now your brain can't sense the arch of your foot, the inner arch of your foot at all? Then maybe it stays even more away from that area. And it's 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 very much uh, it's very much uh, a, a dark area, a dark place and that it doesn't want to move into. So we do have to be careful with with what we prescribe to people and it has to be based on their individual case and it has to be based on KPIs that if I put you in a certain footwear or I put you barefoot and I check some stuff and then I recheck some stuff, my retest better be better if I'm if I'm saying that this shoe is better for you or barefoot is better for you. You know, now ideally you probably would be pushing people more towards being able to do some training and live their life barefoot. But that doesn't mean that that's necessarily the right thing straight away for people. I think a lot of the time, and I know the question wasn't about barefoot, but a lot of the time I see people's body move worse when they start to wear barefoot shoes. Yeah, that was something that I, I know we've mentioned before. And that when you had said that to me, that really got me on a, a long train of thought. And I, I don't want to necessarily rabbit trail because we were talking about you know the the, the supination, supination, the sensation, and and also mm-hmm. I was going to make a comment too about the 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 full body element of pronating and yielding. So I, I want to make sure I get back to that. However, I, what you said it makes a lot of sense because I've been thinking. Well, it it ties to you. It said like you know we we evolved or we're we are meant to 
be walking around on like twigs and and a ground that is not flat and smooth. We are meant to be walking mm-hmm. around with all these things that that uh, either perturb the feet or cause the feet to have to sense and react in a particular way. And yet, and so we mm-hmm. talk about barefoot, but barefoot on a wood floor is not a very sensory rich environment. Even though you're barefoot, it's like, well, there's not really a lot mm-hmm. necessarily going on here. And even you know, like a like a field turf. Well, there's more now. Like there's there's a little more going on, but it's still kind of flat and predictable. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so I I think about what you said with the arches and and the arch of a shoe, and it it is so easy just to be so polarized to like just totally demonize shoes. But like you said, mm-hmm. like some people, and again, I don't think it should be the it should be the goal to be able to use minimal shoes or barefoot shoes or go barefoot and and be able to sense and be okay. But that doesn't mean that people are just going to be able to do that. Like, it, there's a lot more that has to be processed through the foot. And yeah, I was definitely. I was glad that you had mentioned that. Definitely, and in in the in, in with posture restoration institute, they speak a lot about that from a from a sensory aspect. So I know Gary would speak a lot about the mechanical aspect of how the foot actually moves and loads, and they'll look at it a little bit more from the sensory side of things, where they they might just a lot of the time now, I just put, I just get someone to start to to bend their to bend their knee forward, and I just have a sock under the arch of their foot, and I just want you to feel the sock and allow the weight of the foot to drop down into your into the sock. It's like I've created a little bed for the arch to fall into, and it's like it's like a little safe space for the brain, and that arch starts to flatten down, and then as we bring the knee back out again, that arch will start to lift back up again. So I am introducing mechanics, but it's a it's hopefully a safe space for the brain to move into because movement is about safety. And that's, I know that's a big kind of buzzword these days, but your brain is not going to move somewhere where it hasn't inhabited for a while and doesn't really know what's there. So the, the, the safest place, if we can start to introduce movement into the feet, then the safest place for the brain usually to inhabit is a more neutral foot. Because now if we, ha- we do have those perturbations for nature from, from the world, from our environment, and the brain needs to be able to react and your body needs to be able to react, then it's, a more, it's an easier place to react from if it's, if it's in a neutral place because it can go left and right. Whereas if I'm already very, very, very pronated and I step on something or I go to twist my ankle or something, I, or I need to pronate more, I have nowhere left to go. And that's similar with a supination. If I'm locked up and standing on the outside of my feet and I step on a rock or I'm running or I'm playing sport, I have nowhere left to go, only only out on the outside of that ankle. And that's not a nice place to be. So if we can introduce motion into these joints, then we'll typically find ourselves, and that's what Gary speaks about, is that kind of we return more to center. And posture is a little bit of a dirty word at the moment in the, in the, in the pain and performance um, field and and it kind of rightly should it it should be in a lot of ways because people people are speaking about posture and they're selling posture as a way to fix pain and i only speak about posture as it relates to movement and posture relates to movement in that if i can set your joints up in a in a position where they are more likely to access movement from that's what is a good posture for me the posture that you can access movement and go left and right and up and down and forward and back and everything else in between. And that's a nice place to access movement from. So people come in all shapes and sizes, but at the end of the day, 
can they access movement, the movement that their joint needs, no more, no less. And that's the question I think we should be asking. Yeah. And that, that idea too, it, it really puts it in the individual rather than a, a very contrived or manufactured version of, because even if there is the, some sort of you know, perfect posture to put someone into that is just going to make them contract a bunch of muscles in a compensation based yeah. manner to get there. I mean, just how do you, you know, like, and you can kind of like pull some strings and say, stretch this, but then it's just not, it's not about, like you said, then it doesn't become about center anymore. And the podcast that I recently oh. released with Edward New, a Feldenkrais practitioner, talked a lot about that. Like, even if there is this like perfect technique out there it's all about well how do you you know you as an individual how do you get there without compensating and using your machinery as an individual to create this response and so i i like that um i like that concept a lot more than i think we we tend to idealize things posture when people usually speak about posture it's they don't appreciate the self-organization uh of the brain and if I tell you that your perfect posture is you to squeeze your shoulder blades back, then I've just increased tension into a certain area and I've taken away movement options because, and we see this all the time, Joel, people say, maybe, maybe you don't see it as much as I do, but I hear people, I get people coming into clinic to me or working with me online and they've been told to, excuse me, they've been told to squeeze their glutes when they walk or squeeze their glutes when they run. And the question is, when should you be squeezing that glute? What, what, at what exact moment should you have done that and what moment should it have relaxed? And that's the same as posture. It's you should be sitting up straight or you should be standing straight or walking in this way. Well, how, how straight should I be standing and how do I know when is too much? And the answer is just relax. And if you do your exercise as well or whatever movements that we focus on to improve what we need to focus on, then the brain will take that information and just integrate it into your movement without you ever having to focus on anything. So if you're telling people to focus on posture and and holding their feet or their knees or their hips in a certain way, then it means you haven't done your exercises well enough because the brain actually hasn't taken that. And that I I think we we could expand that conversation out into sprinting mechanics and we see people talking about high knees and, and doing this and this and this with your chest and your pelvis and, and uh, backside versus frontside and cues are good. But at the end of the day, if you've done your practice well enough and you've practiced on the certain things that you need to improve, then when you go and sprint, if your brain appreciates that that's the most efficient and effective way to move, then it will adopt that those those movements anyway. And if it doesn't, then you're fighting against yourself. Yeah, I, I think that over the last, I would say, I, I've always kind of had this in my head and it's just become more clear over the years. And you, you said this, um, basically the way I almost see it is you're with muscle activation, you're, it's the, it's a, it's a, a frame of letting it happen versus making it happen. And I think the typical way that a lot of the industry of training athletes has gone is, well, if it's not happening, we'll just make it happen. Just shorten the muscle and make it so you mm-hmm. oh, you aren't feeling your glutes. Well, let's just do some shortening exercises or, or, or consciously shorten it. And I, will, I mean, maybe there's a little bit more mind muscle connection that can happen there. You know, I'm always trying to look at all the positives. I, I don't think it's like not going to mm-hmm. do anything, but ultimately it's, it's more about letting, you know, cr- set the joints up so that you can now just let the glute do its work and feel it because you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're creating a more natural environment where the joints are set up to properly lengthen the muscle and, and everything that goes with that. Um, so I, that's been a big wholesale thing for me where I've started to shift. And obviously Gary's work has been a really big part of that. And, 
And so, yeah, it's been a huge shift. And I, I'll take that too to what you were saying before about, because I know this little topic here was about supination, but I, I do agree. I, I think, you know, I, I, you know, I know me and you both have the interest of psychology and performance and I, in reading Alexander Lowen's stuff and the, the book Bent Out of Shape, it's like there is particular postures that do tend to fit with particular mindsets. And I do think it's uh, supination. Even you can even look at, you know, if you go if you go out there, if, I don't want to get in the weeds, but if you look at kind of um, supination and pronation, pronation is more yielding, supination is more resisting. Um, you could say you could bring yin and yang in there or whatever, but a more rigid mindset is more of a supinated body. And a more yielding, you know, mindset is more of a more pronated or you could say pronating. But but I think that Mm -hmm. if you just watch people running around the track or in the gym and you have people who are really supinated, you know, and and they're probably going to be a little more mentally rigid versus people who are really pronated, like are going to be a little more yielding. You could call them a pushover or stuff like that. I mean, I'm getting the weeds here, but uh, <laughs> but I, I would agree with you. And I, but I'll, I'll take this into just like the will. You know, I, I've just had a post on this, and I've, the the idea of and again, I believe in intention. But if you're trying to force everything and use your willpower to force every little movement, I do think you end up with a more supinated kind of type type setup more of a mm-hmm. outside, I guess you just call it outside edge or, you know, externally rotated and very, very much how we coach squats <laughs> and, and bilateral squats in many yeah. ways. And so I, I, I like that you mentioned that because I think that that, you know, bringing the mind into that cycle is, is an important consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the, Oh, I've lost my train at all. Yeah, sorry, I got out of the weeds. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I, I had a question on supination. If you want me to ask, <laughs> I was gonna close that out before we got into lifting, but yeah. So let's just let's just close this out. Um. So yeah, all good. Let's just close this out. Uh, I'll I will re remember the last supination question that I had to kind of get this, and then we'll get into the lifting element. Uh. So because I, I was thinking mm-hmm. about this, with, you know, supinating. In my left foot, I know in the work that we've done, um, you know, virtually since we haven't been able to connect in person, and then uh, where I was stuff I was recently doing with Rocky uh, Snyder down at Rocky's gym, um, it was some supination exercises for my foot, and just mm-hmm. to to experience supination more. And I noticed after doing some of those, it did feel like, and from as much as I can access my feelings from like my my teenage and high school and early twenties versus now in my mid mid thirties, I. I felt just more, and I'm sure everyone kind of gets this in the, you know, the 10, there's a lot of factors here, but, but I've always kind of been seeking accessing just that pop off the ground I had in jumping and, and in sprinting. And I feel like when I do the supination, you know, experience movements where I'm, where I'm experiencing my foot in a more supinated manner and I'm mm-hmm. twisting and externally rotating like my tibia and stuff, I do feel like my foot is a little more alive. Like there's a little more snap off the ground. And I know if we, we look at pronation, supination is pronation is unlocking the foot. So you can get that little splat, that little trampoline, but, and, and supination is that relocking to apply the power. Um, I'm just curious on, on what your thought on that is and how it fits with, with running and jumping and actually like power in the toe off. And I know it's a relationship and I, I think this can be get complicated, but, um, what's your, yeah. what's, can you go into your thoughts on that? Cause I just have a end of one anecdote. So I'd love to get your yeah. take on supination yeah. and power there. It, it, it's, if we, if we look at the whole, if we look at the whole kind of triple extension thing, Joel, 
that people would say that's kind of your, your push off, your powerful moment. Um, well, you're going to struggle to do that if you can't supinate your foot. And now this is a, this is a, again, you're talking about getting into the weeds. This is a big topic, but people, I see people that, I see coaches that, that force triple extension are very aggressive with triple extension. And when I see that, I see actually the whole timing of all the mechanics are thrown mm-hmm. off because they haven't pronated in. They extend the knee way too soon. And I spoke about that on the last podcast. They get, they, they, they don't get a chance to get hip extension, which starts to come before the knee starts to extend. So we do need an isometric or a co-contraction around the knee as the foot is hitting the floor. And that's what allows energy to be transferred around the chain from the hip down to the ankle. If that knee is a little bit wobbling around, and this goes for, for pain or performance, but if that knee is a little bit wobbly or unstable, then I'll either sink down into my knee too much or I'll start to extend back too soon. And either way, that is not a that is not a pop that you're speaking about. That is inefficiency. That is energy that's not being transferred. And that is a very, very muscular driven movement rather than an energy attendance movement or a fascial movement or whatever way you want to classify it. So pronation is that is going to be that loading in that should be that kind of more isometric at the knee. It's not that it's not that the knee should be flexing. It's that the muscles around the knee should be stopping the knee from extending too soon. I've loaded into the foot and then hopefully then if my foot can do a good job, I can kind of resupinate and start to get that pop off the foot and the knee can start to extend then back as the hip keeps extending forward or through. And it's just again, it's just again the timing of it. And people talk about strength, strength a lot of the time for these things. It's really not a strength thing, I don't think. Now, obviously, we need a baseline of strength. We need to make sure we have good strength in all our tissues. But it's a timing thing. And if the foot can't time well with the knee and the hip, then I'm going to be thrown off and I'm definitely not going to get that pop. I'm going to get more of a muscular effort, I think. So that supination is just that kind of after I've loaded in that propulsion moment, that that knee extension moment. Um, and what you might see is that if the foot can't do it, the knee might extend too soon because they don't kind of time together and twist together and rotate together. Um, and, and that might be a grumpy knee or that might be a grumpy Achilles tendon or that might be just a, an inefficient, an inefficient movement. But they, they, they time together and it's, it's really not a strength thing a lot of the time, I don't think. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymAware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the GymAware. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the gym work go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10 squatter versus a 5'11 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as Coach Me Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store, 
is the Flex, which is the ultra-portable and lower-priced travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics. So for this and the gym wear, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, the, the timing is just so, I mean, it is spectacular to me how well the brain, and a lot of it's just free energy, the way that joints can move under with some free energy and gravity. But obviously, mm-hmm. but but just the way that the brain can time all this stuff that happens in hundreds or thousands of a second with because like you're and this brings me back to even just thinking about the muscle saying contract this muscle versus letting it happen it's kind of the same thing when we coach triple extension instead of letting triple extension happen when it's supposed to uh we're just saying do it and that's going to screw up the timing (laughs) and i just think that's what that's you know darian Barr talks about this is timing is one of the most underappreciated things in this whole industry because it's like Yes, you need to pronate. Yes, you need to supinate. But when is really important because, yeah, like you said, if you force triple extension early, now you're you're letting you're not letting the glute work. You're probably screwing up the co contractions to let. I mean, it's sprinting and acceleration, mm-hmm. especially, but even jumping too. Um, and I think about when I was taught to, you know, with you and Rocky teaching me to supinate. It's almost like I, I experience supination, and then when I go do my thing, it's just but the body's taking care of the timing. But now because I experienced it a little more, maybe that last little crack of the whip, you know, is is a better yeah. experience now because I have more of that sensation in my system. And there you go. I'm just exactly. so I'm so up on just giving athletes sensation and then just letting them figure it out more to a much higher degree than I would have been five or ten years ago. Exactly, and that's the self organization that I'm talking about, Joel. We just, we get you to feel something. We, we get movement and it's not, I, I want to be careful. This is not mobility that we're talking about. This is not getting more movement. It's not about getting someone to do the splits. It's timing the joints with other joints and, and experiencing the movement. And if we've got that right, and if it was a valuable movement, then your brain is going to suck it up. It's going to take it. And we need to be, and this is, Sometimes it's hard for people to hear this because it's either, especially in the pain world, if you have an Achilles tendon problem, they'll say, here's your calf raise protocol and off you go. And that problem has been solved for us already. It completely takes away critical thinking. It's like, okay, but before you come in and see me, I know you've written down on your intake form Achilles tendinopathy and I know the calf raise protocol I'm going to give you. But what if I could just change the timing of your of your calcaneus, your heel bone, how your foot strikes and interacts with the floor, then probably the Achilles is actually not the problem. It's probably just doing too much work or at the wrong time or being tugged on a little bit in the wrong way. And that's getting a little bit grumpy. So if I can change how your foot interacts with the floor, then maybe the foot starts to load different. The load starts to go in a slightly different direction. And you've experienced this, Joel. We've we've done some work on your Achilles in the past. And you, I guarantee you, you don't have weak calves. I guarantee you, you've done a lot of calf work over the years because you've had Achilles tendinopathy for a long time and you've experienced pain after a run or the next morning or something like that. 
And yet when we do some work on your foot, that pain starts to go away. And where is that in the cathary protocol? And I see this all the time. It's, 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 it's maybe that protocol works for a lady who has never done any strength training in her life. And she just trains her calves and, and she feels a little bit better. And she's done two heavy calf race sets a week and two light calf race sets a week. And that starts to feel better. And of course it will. But for an athlete, and I work with a lot of, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of pretty high level athletes. And they usually come to me because they've tried all that stuff. And then if we can go just get joints and bones and, and things to experience movement in a slightly different way and change the timing, then we don't have to change strength. It's not a weakness problem. It's a timing problem. And you've experienced that. I've experienced that. These tendinopathies, if we always presume that the tendon is the problem, then we're always going to presume that strength is the answer. But what if the tendon is not the problem? What if that's just what if that's just the, the thing that's experiencing the symptom? 100%. I mean, that's, that's the story of my life with my Achilles tendons and even knee pain too. I mean, my knee pain hasn't been that substantial since high school, but it still does get in it. But the Achilles was the thing that I was for years struggling with. And for so long, that's all I had was exercises and various calf raises and isometrics if it was a problem. And, well, you know, trying to go, and I did expand out into a lot of other like proprioceptive things that were helping way more, but it would never quite go away until I started working with you and getting my, yeah, getting my calcaneus to move, getting my joints to move. And then it was completely gone. And (laughs) I just think we want we, we just seek the re- most reductionist. And I get it. I, I get Occam's razor and I get 80-20 and you should be able to explain things simply. But it's almost like we want, our hope is too much in exercises for to totally bail us out and save us. You know, very simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, the solution is, I mean, honestly, the stuff that we've done, just getting the calcaneus to move is not complicated. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's not, it really isn't. But I think that we oftentimes, we know exercises, like our anchor is exercise and movements. And we want to look completely to those in context of muscles. Cause I mean, getting your calcaneus to move and your foot to move in opposition is an exercise too. But I think we, we, we really try to frame of reference things we're most familiar with, which is just more big muscle group stuff, just calf raises, versions of calf raises. This is going to bail you mm-hmm. out. And that stuff, like you said, that stuff does make a difference. Like I had someone who recently messaged me on Instagram after I posted, um, a video, an exercise that Rocky had me doing with the Gary Ward, uh, Gary Ward's wedges and where I was really working my leg and glute and VMO and great, you know, getting all that activated through opposition of the joints. And they, I believe they were commenting about that, but they were, they were saying like, I've done the isometrics and it's given me relief, but it always comes back. They killed the tendonitis always comes back. And it's like, until mm-hmm. you can start getting your joints to move, it's always kind of going to come back. Like you, I think you can get some, you know, temporary relief from things, but to me that yeah like you're saying like the joints ultimate and the timing that the timing of the joints uh and i i don't want to keep rambling here but i had this thought so it's the last ramble i'll do and then i'll ask you my next question but <laughs> my my buddy paul cater and 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 we've talked about this and i've experienced this myself but he's like i never pull my hamstring going to catch a football like when someone throws me a football and i go to get it i'll never tweak a hamstring or a muscle but if i'm just doing sprints against the clock you know and paul's to 40 he's getting a little older but like if i'm doing sprints against the clock i'm gonna start tweaking stuff and i it's the same with me like i if i um if i i found and i'm a little better now i feel like i'm in a good functional place now but like a year ago i would do sprints and time myself and i would oftentimes my right adductor would just be getting fired up like i'd have to stop 
But if I would run um, with pulsers in my hands, it wouldn't hurt. And it's kind of because like that, that pulsar acted as a timing regulator for my body to have feedback, to have this proprioceptive vibration feedback where I, I wouldn't, but, but as soon as you just put it all in my brain and I'm thinking about stuff, timing is going to get messed up. And yeah, I just think mm-hmm. timing is so underappreciated. It's, it's, and the yeah. more you get into the foot too, that's just hundreds of thousands of a second coming at you. It's so fine, but it's, but the brain will take care exactly. of it, right? You know, when you give it the, the exactly. experience. And we, we talk about, we talk about load, Joel, we talk about load quite a lot and load is obviously a big, big thing. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all of this is mechanics. You can go out and run and sprint seven days a week. Your Achilles is probably going to be sore or you can do drop jumps or whatever. Your Achilles is probably going to be sore. So load is a big thing and recovery is a huge thing as well, obviously. The question that I'd like people to start to consider or at least, well, they don't have to, but at least I try and consider is why is your right Achilles sore and your left Achilles not? Because I presume people who, who, who listen to this podcast, when they go for a run, they run on two legs. So both legs are, are experiencing load, the same amount of steps, hopefully. Um, but yet one Achilles is sore. So what is the global load that you've done on that day with your body? Is that too much? Or is it just that you load your right Achilles tendon too much on every single step? because something else isn't doing a good job. And this is the same way we can talk about knee pain, we can talk about patellar tendinopathy, something that I experienced for many, many, many years, and Achilles tendinopathy for many, many years as well. And all the strength stuff, all the isometrics, it all helps, it all, and tissue quality is a real thing. Tissue quality, I can go and strength train, that's why functional movement doesn't really exist in that if I have a hamstring problem and I go and do hamstring curls, that could make me better because my tissues might be stronger. So I'm 100% not against any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be the guy that falls on one side. I I like to sit on the fence because I can see both sides of the fence. But if, if I have a patellar tendinopathy and, and I see it all the time, if every single time you go and jump and run, you're, you're dipping into that, you're tapping into that patellar tendon for what the Achilles tendon should be doing, then you can do all the front squats with, with a slow eccentric. You can do all the isometrics. You will feel better, but you're never going to get rid of it because you haven't changed why it's there in the first place. So people are obsessed with diagnosis. What's the diagnosis? Where do I have the pain? What is my pain? Let's forget a little bit about that. Let's clear off red flags. Let's look at that. And let's, let's ask, why do you have the pain? Because if you have two legs and one side is a, an Achilles problem and, and another doesn't, and you take the same amount of steps, then there's something something to consider there more than just strength. And even there might be a rebuttal to that, that, well, maybe that right calf is weaker. Well, the, I can ask the question, why would that right calf be weaker? Because if you take the same amount of steps throughout your life, really, they should be quite similar, unless you're moving quite different on both sides. And we have to ask why does that person there have an Achilles problem versus that person up there have uh, a hip impingement and it's because of mechanics and it's because of load and how they're loading and how they're moving and we we talk about load and we talk about strength but strength does not solve these problems a lot of the time and People will always, it's so easy to say strength is the issue. It's, it's the easiest thing in the world. If you come into me and, and you have a problem, then I can explain that very rationally. Your calf is not strong enough. 
and that gets me off the hook and that I don't have to do any more critical thinking. But if we're making if we're making the presumption that it's a strength problem, then that strength is going to take then you're basically saying you're going to be in pain for the next three months until you can get stronger or at least three weeks or four weeks until you can get stronger. But what if I could change your pain in minutes? And, and that's what I see every single day. Now, I'm not saying these things are quick fixes. I don't want to seem like I'm trying to sell a quick fix here in any way. I'm not actually trying to sell anything. We're just having a chat. But we can make changes to movement and how you load very, very quickly because we understand that the brain is the boss. And not just the brain. A lot of these things happen at the, the spinal cord level. They're, they're quick loop reflexes that are happening. They don't even go up to the brain. But we, we can understand that the body is a reflexive system. And if we can tap into that, we can make changes very, very quickly. And I hope I know that's a little bit of a, a long winded. Um, I probably have to have gone off on one there, but I hope that kind of makes sense because that's a point I'd like to get across. Yeah, I, I, I do like to how you said, um, I mean, the strength stuff does can be helpful. It's just not the optimal. And it oftentimes, you know, will come. But to say to say that strength. You know, I, I know you're finishing too. I, I mean, we often just pin it solely on strength. Like, oh, it's just because you're weak. Like, that's, you know, very binary and it doesn't solve the joint and the biomechanical and timing problems that got you there in the first place. But I do like how you, you mentioned, I mean, there are some athletes who, you know, can do strength and find some relief. It's just ultimately you have to dig into the biomechanics for the optimal solution. Um, I, mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, so you mentioned knee pain because I know that's something we we're going to talk about today. Um, so what are some of the big, uh, biomechanical, I know there's, you know, there's a lot of things, but what are some big, uh, biomechanical and timing based issues that you see show up in people who have knee pain? Yeah. Uh, and just on that, and that, that this relates to that, this question as well. When I say that, that stuff about strength, I load my athletes very, very, very hard and they work very, very, very hard. I just feel like I don't have to be the guy that chooses one or the other. Mm-hmm. I can do both. And I, I get them to squat. I get them. I might, it might not, the squat might not look like how well other people coach the squat. But if, if anyone has ever worked with me who's listened to this will understand just how hard they have been worked. But we, I like to have people leaving me moving better rather than feeling like they're on the floor when they walk out of the gym and that they're, they're, that their hips are moving worse as a result and their ribcage is moving worse as a result over, over, I think we can improve both things at the same time is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, Knee pain, knee pain, timing wise, I see, and we definitely spoke about this a little bit on the last podcast, something that one of my mentors, Dave O'Sullivan has, has, has spoken a bit, little bit about in the past or or quite a bit about, he, he looks at for all knee pain clients, Franz Bosch talks a little bit about it, but not from the not from the pain standpoint point, but the performance standpoint. And it's that basically, can you get co contractions to happen around the knee? Can you get an isometric at the knee? I know Adrian Barr probably speaks about it with regards to kind of allowing that allowing that um, that body to kind of fall towards the floor a little bit. And I don't know too much about that, but. If that knee extends, then I'm certainly not falling forward anymore, am I? I'm not moving forward. I'm kind of moving up more so. And we'll see videos of athletes, particularly in my field. Like I look at field sports athletes quite a bit, sport athletes quite a bit. I don't get to look at as many sprinters as I'd like to. But when it comes to field sport athletes, 
they need to stay a bit lower. We're not looking for that triple extension on every step because that's taking them away from the floor and that's mo- that's taking away movement options and change of direction and things like that. So an inability to get an isometric at the knee is a huge, huge, huge issue for me. And I'll train a lot of athletes that so that they can do that. They can co-contract around the knee. But to do that, you have to do a few things. You have to get your foot to move very, very well. There has to be pretension in the muscles before your foot hits the floor. And not too much pretension, not too little pretension. There just has to be enough. And that comes from, from training well. That comes from training a lot. And also that comes from not having pain, which is a little bit of a paradox because pain messes up the timing. So if we if we have pain for a while, which I did have, the timing, the pretension around the muscles, the things that happen when your foot hits the floor is going to change. So we need to re-educate that. And a squat certainly doesn't re-educate that. A squat will help with tissue quality, which is awesome, uh, but it doesn't re-educate that. So I like to do a lot of isometrics in knee-specific joint angles where we can get the hip to work hard, we can get the foot to work hard, and we're trying to get them co-contractions around the knee. If a knee extends too soon, then the hip, the hip, the glutes are not getting a chance to have an active hip extension. The quads are kind of doing all the pushing, and that's a, not a happy knee. On the flip side of that, if we see someone who's doing their plyometrics and they're sinking a little bit too much on the plyometrics, and they're not as stiff as they as they could be, and I'm not saying that we should be stiff for all our plyometrics or, or should have good stiffness for everything we do. But you should, if I ask you to show me stiffness, I should be able, you should be able to show me that. And I see that when I was watching some of your bounds on Instagram the other day, Joel, we see a little bit of that stiffness. We don't see huge long ground contact times and sinking down into a, into a tendon. We see, we see springiness at the foot and, uh, and that's an issue. That's a big issue if someone is sinking on every single step that they take. It's just as big an issue as someone extending the knee back too soon. They can't get an isometric at the knee, meaning they can't take advantage of the reflexive properties of the muscle and and energy transfer, basically, and the tendons. Or maybe they're taking advantage of their patellar tendon and not their Achilles tendon. So in a way, you're you're saying they, they should have stiffness when called upon, like in a hopping situation. But they also should have a softness when called upon, like the yielding of the knee forward into that incomplete triple extension when running like they should be able to do that to be able to Mm -hmm. i I guess you could say there is that pronation element there too i mean or pronating while the the shin is dropping i'm not i need to i mean i don't know 100 percent exactly what happens there in the little timing cycle um but could i say Mm -hmm. i mean if i'm just making a if i'm at least zooming out a little bit to generalize a little bit I, i could say there needs to be stiffness in a, in a stiff or hopping based situation, but there also needs to be, um, uh, they also should be able to pronate into, uh, acceleration or sprinting where, where they're not triple extending early or, or timing an early triple extension being a mm-hmm. you know, big problem. We, we can have, we can have certainly in the, in the rehab setting, I'll, I'll make sure that the foot is moving well and, and that they can get the isometric around the knee. I will make sure that they, they train stiffness quite a bit that, if they are doing their hopping and stuff, I don't want them to sink down. Now, that doesn't mean when they go back and play their sport that they won't be sinking down or kind of falling forward or anything like that. But we'll see that athletes, when they come into me in the rehab setting and they do have knee pain, they actually can't do anything but sink down. But that's not a controlled movement. It's a 
it's a I'm trying to sit my butt back and down because I don't want to I don't want to load my tendon. But it's a little bit of a paradox again in that if I if I sink down into my knee when I land from a plyometric or something like that, then I'm not using an isometric around the knee, which does which actually protects the knee. So the athlete is trying to te- they've changed their movement pattern to become a little bit more sinky so that it's not a stiffness and a, and a pop off the floor. Because if you've ever had knee pain, you won't love a pop off the floor. But the pop off the floor is actually what uses your foot and your Achilles, which protects your knee in the long run. So it's, it's a it's a tricky situation to fall into. But we need that stiffness there. But we also need. We also need, if, if I'm changing direction, I have to be able to pronate my foot. If I'm taking a step, I have to be able to pronate my foot. But p- I think sometimes people think that pronation means we're not being stiff. Well, actually, when the foot hits the floor, there is going to be a moment of pronation and then a, a moment of resupination. That doesn't mean I'm not being stiff, though. I can get, I can have both at the same time, I think. Yeah, so you're saying in the hopping. So if I'm just hopping, and again, when you're actually playing your sport, you're doing lots of different positions. It's not, it's, mm-hmm. you know, you probably wouldn't actually see hopping in a sport situation. <laughs> uh, but you're saying that when someone's like doing a, just, just like a, even say a jump rope or something like that, the the quads and should be co-contracting or the muscles around the knee should be co-contracting to kind of lock that, to freeze the knee. Well, the Achilles mm-hmm. tendon and the calves work to provide the spring, basically. For someone exactly. who who doesn't have that, whose muscles aren't co-contracting well around the knee, their their knee is sinking too much, and that probably screws up the timing a little bit with the Achilles tendon as well. Exactly, and 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 that's that that's that little bit of stiffness that we see the best athletes, and that's longer ground contact times as well. They can't do that if they're sinking longer ground contact times, um, and it's it's. It's very important to retrain that back in. If you're doing your plyometrics in a rehab setting with long ground contact times, then you now at, at some point that might be valuable, but that's really not what we're looking for. Yeah, that that makes sense. So, so in terms of uh, you mentioned a couple of things, so I just want to dig into these. Is one uh, from uh, I think feel like this was more of a run specific idea, but but people who run and triple extend too early or or could you explain some isometric training? You mentioned isometrics for people who need to kind of pair the glute with the foot better, who are triple extending early and can't um, manage those co-contractions around the knee when that, that foot is um, pushing under in the run or it's where where that bent knee is kind of coming through in the running situation. What what are some movements or some ways to train that isometric to help people get that, that co-contraction, mm-hmm. that sense that they need to have when they're in the in the running yeah well actually i think you've had alex and tara on so he has a lot of run specific isometrics which i really really like and they train the knee in that in that specific joint angle now i would see them as more performance side of things and i would hopefully push my athletes and my clients towards those at some stage but then i have a lot more that i do in a more rehab setting which is lower level than that although in some ways not very lower level because there's a couple of movements there we have that I would see as performance and rehab, it's kind of the same thing, to be honest. Movement is better movement is better movement. Um, so I think I've shown you one before, Joel, where I have someone lying on their back with their foot on top of a foam roller uh, with the knee extended out into like a joint specific knee angle. 
and they push down the forefoot down into the foam roller and lift their hips up off the floor a couple of inches and they're driving their heel up into the sky and if you basically look at someone from the side and then flip them standing up they're in that running specific posture and people will hopefully maybe you can put a picture or something into the into the show yeah, notes, so but if yeah. people try and hold that for 45 seconds they're going to really struggle and we'll see an inability to to get the synergist working of the of the calf and the hamstring working together and if someone can't do that and they have knee pain and they can't hold a position like that then i'm hesitant to even put them into standing because they're showing an inability to express strength in that joint angle and they're showing an inability to probably co-contract around the knee and they're probably going to be loading through the knee a little bit too much then yeah it reminds me a little bit of what uh, edward you was saying on a recent podcast about how starting on the floor is better from a sensory or rudimentary perspective than standing up as well like you can and i'm sure gravity too just the way you're trying to train the hip but i mean that's a that is a tough exercise too uh and so yeah. <laughs> that one and so that one yeah i'll try to get that in the show notes there so when you're lying on your back and, and you're, you have that foot on the roller and your, your knee is probably about uh, maybe like, I'm trying to think maybe 150 degrees of flexion or something like that. Like, I think that's about what you come through in the run. And the, the thing that I've experienced with that is I think when we're doing, or it's like a single leg glute bridge basically. But so often when we do those single leg glute bridges, we just try to lift the hip up again, shortening paradigm. Like we try to lift the hip all the way off the ground and then we just try Mm -hmm. to contract the glute as hard as possible. So how is it different when you're only leaving the hip off the ground a couple inches in a single leg glute bridge? Why are you Mm -hmm. uh, why are you looking to do that? Mm -hmm. Well, just just one thing there. So people would probably consider when you say single leg glute bridge uh, in this, you're lying on your back and then then you he is almost fully extended and then the foot is on the roller so we're not the heels aren't in close to our butt basically so when we push through the foot like that and lift the hips a couple of inches off the floor if i flipped you up if i took a picture of that and turned the screen then your foot would be directly under your hip which would be which would be hopefully like stance phase in in gait Whereas if we start to go foot on the floor and a glute bridge and i lift my glute bridge up as glute as high as i can now I've, I've, I've gone into like kind of a hip extension, but my foot has gone miles back behind me. So the, the position, the optimal length tension relationships of the hamstrings and, and, uh, and the hip extensors are not really working well together. So people will be always, the, the weaker people will lift up higher because they'll try and use their back extensors to mm-hmm. lift up. But when you take that foot an inch off the floor, and they'll do that a lot in the PRI stuff. They'll just do a tiny little posterior tilt and lift the hip off the floor an inch and your hamstrings will be screaming at you because you're not, you're taking the back extensors out of it and you're forcing the leg to do the work. It's quite an interesting one. I know it's hard to speak about specific yeah. exercises on a podcast as such, but I would love if people could try it because they're going to be quite humbled at, at that, at that foam roller bridge exercise. If they have knee pain, do 45 seconds and, um, and come back to me and tell me that you could only do 10. Um, <laughs> And and when you get to 45, I bet you your knee will feel a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, it is hard to explain exercises online, but it's simply, I think it's just simply saying, just do a, you're doing a glute bridge with your without with your back on the ground, ball the foot on the foam roller, instead of lifting all the way up, you're just lifting an inch or two. And I I like I like how that respects the force, the like the length tension and the specificity you're running too. It just it makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense with you know the way that we look at the timing of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we can get we can get like 
I think everything is specific in some ways. Like everything for someone who has a weak hamstring, I can't. Like I said earlier, we can get them doing hamstring curls, and that and that might help because that's specific to their body. Um, but when we when we do put, I basically want to burn it into someone's brain that when your foot hits the floor, this is how your calf and hamstring load together, not not like as a as a kinetic chain almost. This is how they load together. And I burn that into someone's brain when they have knee pain and suddenly they go and walk up the stairs and the knee pain is gone and they go and they go and um, they go and squat. The knee pain is gone and hopefully they go and run and the knee pain is gone. I'm not saying that exercise is going to take them all the way there, but that's a good way to start. And then we try and bring those principles all the way from the floor, all the way through to their to their hopping work and their sprinting work. And um, the brain sucks it up because in some ways, we can look at co-contractions as performance-based, right? We can we can say that we need co-contractions around some certain joints to allow us to transfer energy. But if we look at co-contractions from a pain standpoint, then if my brain has an ability to co-contract around a joint, then that means it has an ability to stabilize a joint against perturbation. And then that means that it can send forces and disperse forces to to some other site. It can go elsewhere. And a brain basically has a couple of options to protect an area. One option is pain. It can it can keep sending pain to the area and you're probably not going to load it that, that much. Now, I think if we can if we can give the brain another option, which is the inbuilt mechanism to protect our joint, which is co-contractions around the joint, then it has much less need to express pain in the area. And it can change almost instantly. And we see that with isometrics anyway, Joel, for tendons. We see that isometrics have an analgesic effect on tendons. But I think if we can get that analgesic effect and do the isometrics in our joint-specific angles, then we're training both things at the same time. And the kind of band-aid that isometrics are for people like, oh, I'll do a I'll do a leg extension isometric and my patellar tendon will feel good for half an hour or 45 minutes. I think we can be more specific with these things so that we're training the kind of reflexive properties of the muscle and getting the analgesic effect at the same time. And at some stage, I don't have to do my isometrics anymore because I've trained you how to run better. Yeah, I to- totally agree with that. I, I, again, I just love the the specificity of that position compared to, I think what we often times get in, in regards to looking at that and the timing and, and how that fits with running. And then like you said, the, with the back too, where, where you're limiting that ability to compensate with extension. Um, I, I was going to ask as well. So with knee pain too, and we were talking about joints and, and joint based approaches, are there anything you, any things that you're seeing and, and trying to shore up from, um, like a, like a pronation, supination, supination, joint rotation, um, those elements that, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of them, right? So many different combinations that could fit into why things are ending up at the knee. But between the feet mm-hmm. and the hips, are there any like things that you're kind of really looking at to say we need this to move better so that your knee isn't taking the the brunt of this? Uh, everything, to be honest, Joel. I like I like to take everything into account. For someone, for someone who I just, I like to look at injury history, obviously, like everyone does, and. We'll, we'll see it a lot of the time that someone just has an old injury that they just don't move very well. A lot of ankle sprains or something like that. It doesn't move and load very well. Um, if you can combine, if you combine, if you combine uh, someone who squats a lot 
it's it's probably it's probably someone who it's probably someone who maybe doesn't have amazing range of motion around the hips anymore and are a little bit locked up around the rib cage and the pelvis so that's a that's a lot of joints there that aren't moving very well and then they've been told to lift their chest up for every single exercise so chest up as far as you can and and go into a big the biggest anterior tilt you can and you do that in your squat you do that in your deadlift you do that in your nordic curls you do that in your bench press you do that in every single exercise that's ever been invented in the gym and then we say that we're promoting variability because oh we're not doing it on two legs and then we're going to go on one leg and do it but actually your joints are in the same position and you're promoting knees out again and we're promoting a supination we're promoting external rotation at the hips and anterior tilt at the pelvis and then someone comes and tells me that their vmo is is weak and 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 that's the reason for their knee pain and they have like 40 joints or 50 joints that actually don't move at all then i'd rather start with that stuff and get that stuff moving than think about you have one muscle that actually doesn't load very well uh so i guess i guess it's a vague answer i i try to give the person what's missing and for a lot of I'm lucky enough to kind of consult with a lot of top strength conditioning coaches for themselves and for their clients. And when when a, a traditional strength and conditioning approach has not worked, we'll often see huge limitations at things like rib cage, pelvis and feet. And just getting those things to, to start moving again, combined with strength and conditioning, but maybe in slightly different positions than a chest up maybe just show me demonstrate a little bit control a little bit of control around the pelvis and the rib cage to me and do the same and do a front squat uh or do a single leg squat with maybe a little bit of the chest rotated over the front knee or or something like that Th- those things those things are are performance in my opinion those things are are taking away pain a lot of the time those things are promoting longevity i'm not I don't have to I don't have to chase strength and lose movement at the same time. I can I can increase both at the same time. I just have to be smart about how I do it. Um, so the knee is just the knee is just being torqued up from the feet. The feet are telling it one thing, the hip is telling it another thing, and people can't get those joints in agreement with each other. They don't have movement there and you really shouldn't be surprised that maybe the knee loads too much. Yeah. So, so feet, feet, hips, and, or so restoring movement that's lost in the feet, hips, and then rib cage. People don't talk about the rib cage a lot, but rib cage. Yeah. Rib cage. I love the rib cage. The, the, the rib cage is huge. Like there, and even, you know, breathing is becoming a big thing now, Joel, and, and in strength and conditioning circles as well. And I really, really, really don't want to sound like I'm, I'm going on a rant about strength and conditioning stuff because I love all that stuff. I, I, I absolutely love it. Um, I just think there's slightly, excuse me, better ways of doing things and tweaking things that give athletes what they need at the same time. But even the, so all our lifts are chest up and anterior tilt. And then they'll say, okay, now relax with a little bit of belly breathing, which is chest up and anterior (laughs) tilt and everything is spilling forward. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with an anterior tilt. It's a position that we definitely have to be able to go into. Mm -hmm. But if you can't show me that you can take your body out of that and actually show me a clean posterior tilt, which very rarely a strength and conditioning coach can do, um, then I'm probably going to start there rather than thinking about your VMO. You know, it's a, it's a, if there's big joints there that need to be able to move and load and change direction, 
and um and we're powered up in the sagittal plane and and we we have lost all rotation at the hips all rotation at the rib cage breathing mechanics are affected people are promoting belly breathing i don't know that the lungs certainly aren't in the belly i know that the diaphragm will descend and, and but you should you should be able to get expansion through the rib cage that's the reason it's shaped the way it is and that will change length tension relationships at the abs the obliques the hamstrings the quads and we, we can change a lot of things by just getting these joints to start moving again and loading again and the strength work on top of that then works way better in my opinion yeah for, yeah just being able to move the body as intended and and yeah, like you said, anterior tilt is really important. Do you, I mean, sprinting and everything like that, but you got to be able to get out of it. You got to be able to alternate. Um, so David, I think that's, I think that's about the end of the time we have, but I know, you know, since the time we've talked last, you have a couple, uh, related, you know, products and things that are related to this talk today. And can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, where do people follow you? And, and as well as if you wanted to mention any of those that you've recently released. Uh, yeah, I've had a busy few months with the COVID thing, Joel. Um, I'm lucky enough to, to do a lot of online work. So, uh, I'm quite blessed in that way, actually, in some ways, but, um, I, people, excuse me, I'm, I'm choking on a, a brand flake that I had just before we came on. Um, but, uh, uh my Instagram account is David Gray Rehab, G-R-E-Y. Uh, and my website is the same, David Gray Rehab, but I have a, I have a knee pain webinar that I released during the coronavirus. So I've had like over 400 strength and conditioning coaches and therapists have done it now. And basically it's kind of a way of, of a set of principles of look, of how to look at the knee. Um, and we look at, we look at different athletes moving and, and see, see, well, observe certain things and, uh, how to treat knee pain without ever needing to lay hands on someone because a lot of my work is online i'm lucky enough to work online but obviously that takes away the the importance of manual therapy which i don't do much of anyway but we can treat knee pain by by getting certain things to happen in people's body so that um it's quite a cheap it's like 77 euro for that and i know people have said that already they've 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 helped a lot of their clients strength and condition coaches have, have t- helped people take away their knee pain that have had knee pain for years and years so um that might be something that people want to check out but um yeah apart from that joel it's, it's been a pleasure it always it always is a pleasure uh, i've learned a lot from you and every all the other guests so uh it's great to be on yeah thanks thanks for being here again david it's great having you Thanks for being here for another show today. Appreciate having you guys. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us out by leaving a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to the show on. We would totally appreciate that. It really helps us to uh, spread the word of this this show to those people who might be interested in it. Also, we are truly thankful for our sponsors, SimplyFaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, along with having a great blog, a job board. Uh, they really are doing a great job to serve the athletic community by offering uh, things, just so many different levels of education, uh, resources for, for data collection, sports science, and then training tools like the K-Box. So uh, definitely be sure to check them out and see what they are up to with their blog and their online store. We appreciate them. We will be back next week with another great guest. Have a good one. More of-